This week on the In-Depth Podcast, former NFL quarterback Alex Smith. Alex and I actually go way back before his days in the NFL. In fact, I just saw him at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And man, my first time meeting Alex, I was at most in high school. He was in college or just coming out of college. I first met him at the ESPY Awards and stayed in touch off and on ever since. Such a nice, such a smart, such just a decent guy from a great family. Somebody who, after you spend time with, you come away just rooting for. Smith was actually the NFL's Comeback Player of the Year in 2020, making a remarkable recovery after suffering a life-threatening compound fracture to his leg. And prior to the injury, Smith invited us to Kansas City during his last year with the Chiefs in 2017. He humbly spoke of never dreaming to play pro. You'd always hear the stats, right? Like what the percentages of playing professional sports, professional football, right? Like it's... It's, it's it's tiny, it's absurd, right? And uh, so I don't even know if I, I, I dared to dream like that. Working through severe dysfunction during his time with the 49ers. I'm dealing with a head coach on the sideline that's in my face and, and screaming at me on top of fans chanting for the backup. And coping with the suicide of a good friend. I think that this was uh, so hard. I mean, it's just such a, like, literally a member of my family almost. But we start our interview with Alex's childhood and a prized family heirloom. I wanted to start yeah. uh, by taking you back to when you were growing up and uh, ask you about the Red Baron. <laughs> the Red Baron. You know, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of the whole story really starts with its predecessor, the Red Baron's predecessor. Uh, when I grew up, we had this old dingy Chevy Love pickup truck that my older brother and sister drove. Uh-huh. And it was like the family car. It was like a rite of passage when you got your license. I mean, just a little two-door pickup, bench seat. And uh, it didn't quite make it to me, right? Like, it died right before I was getting my license. And I like, was like, sweet, I'm going to get... I'm gonna get an upgrade, you know, like we're gonna get a better car. And like went with my dad to go look at cars, like nothing crazy, they were all kind of trucks. We like, my dad liked having a pickup truck because in case, you know, obviously yard work and things like that, like we could use it. He said and, he liked having a pickup truck too because that minimized yes. the number of people. That yes, for sure, right? You had limited number of seatbelts, right. you're never gonna drive. And then we went and looked <laughs> at this truck, uh, which became the Red Baron, which was like, it was worse than the Chevy Love. Uh, it was this like, to call it red, it was just rusted over, like completely rusted over, but not in a cool way, right? <laughs> like there was no style. And this wasn't like a 70s car anymore. Like the Chevy was a 70s truck, so it kind of had some like swag a little bit. This was like a 1980, like one or two Toyota pickup, like nondescript, just rusted over, bulky, uh, clunker. And, uh, yeah, and then like the passenger door didn't even open on it. So I don't know, my little sister's two years younger than me. And obviously like once we went to high school together and I'm driving her to school, like you had to crawl in. Everybody had to crawl in through the driver door uh, if you wanted. Like no, what no stereo. What does a date do when you, like, what it? when you go pick up a date? Like Yeah, they crawl in. Yeah. Yeah, so, <laughs> which had its advantages. And so yeah, no stereo. We had a little, uh, like a little tiny boom box on the ground. And it had this great feature that like when you, 
Okay, when you got on the freeway and you got like above 50, the windows would fall down <laughs> because of the pressure. Like, so you'd be, you, I, I mean, I'd, you'd be driving with your hand stuck, you know, like this all the time, like jammed anytime we got on a freeway. And no AC. So yeah, it, and everybody knew, yeah, it was no AC, no defroster. Uh, yeah, like, so then, then it came in handy that you could roll the windows down just by like, pulling them down and defrost that way. And you had your head out the window. Head out the like window, but like cold mornings, if it was like fogged up, like, yeah, you had like beanie on, windows down, trying to defrost the thing. So when you were practicing, how often would the car end up like 300 yards away from where you I definitely, it? yeah, like my buddies all the time, like I'd come out and uh, you obviously could get in the car and put it in neutral and, uh, and, and push it wherever you wanted to. Um, so yeah, all the time, like it would be, you'd walk out uh, and you know, you always had your spot or wherever you parked it. And yeah, like sure enough, it'd be in like the far corner of the parking lot, like sitting there and like- Right after also, a hard practice. Yeah, they'd also like done something to it or something, like buried some fish in it or something, you know? Um, yep, that was uh, not irregular for sure. But I think you kind of, the car was kind of a badge of honor for you or kind of became that way. Yeah, everybody knew it, yep, for sure. It was uh, the worst car in the school. Yeah, yeah, easily, yes. What, what do you think your dad was trying to teach you by getting you that? Um, I mean, I think a lot of things. I think for sure just uh, being able to appreciate quality, right? I mean, I think I hadn't earned anything. I mean, I was just given this car by my parents. I barely knew how to drive, you know? You're, you're unproven, you're, you're not totally reliable yet, you know, as a kid. And uh, I think it served a lot of those qualities, right? Like a little bit of humility. I never drove, me and my, when me and my buddies went out, uh, I never was driving, you know, which obviously had its uh, upside as well, right? Like, I, you know, high school kids can be knuckleheads and things like that and uh, took that off my plate. Um, yeah, but I think the biggest thing, right? Humility, right? Having an appreciation for things. Um, uh, being able to work for things, you know, things don't come easy. And uh, so, yeah, to start there and had the benefit, I had to learn how to drive stick. I and mean, that's what I learned on. <laughs> so it still, still has its advantages today. What do you think your parents taught you about uh, money and savings growing up? It's a good question. I mean, for me, you know, we were very early on put on this like small allowance program, right? And like that was it. Like you'd, you'd get a little bit of money early on and you only got it obviously by having good grades. And that was kind of mandatory. Um, and for me, uh, you know, the program was right, if I played sports and, and I got good grades, you kind of qualify for this little bit of money a month. I mean, we're not talking much at all. Uh, but early on, I mean, it was all about yeah, kind of budgeting and um, you had to make it work. I had to be able to pay for my gas and the car and, and uh, my phone and, and be able to do the things I you know, wanted to do. And if I wanted to have a little bit of money to take, you know, take it to go on a date or something or, or whatever, uh, go to the movies, whatever it may be. Like I had to budget all that in. Um, and your parents made sure you understood that. Oh yeah. Yeah. There was no like running out of money and then running back and saying, mom, but, you know, uh, I really need some more, you know, like, no, it's just the way it was, uh, hard lined, uh, you know, and, and I think trying to, uh, to instill in that, right? Like you got to plan ahead you got to be able to be disciplined, you know, and, and prioritize. Yeah. So your dad did say he got you the worst car of any of the siblings, and I think your younger uh, sister, the one he got her, he actually still drives today. Still running. It's still going. Yep. But the, the point that I wanted to make is when did you actually buy your first car? I didn't purchase my first car, God, it was like till like my sixth year in the NFL, uh, like six years in.
there was this crazy thing that uh, when you get drafted and you're like a quarterback, they, like, they give you cars to drive. Uh, it was this like crazy phenomenon, you know, here, you want to drive a loaner car for a while? And I'm like, sure. Uh, and for me at that point, they were all awesome. And, and uh, so I did that. I milked that as long as I could. And finally, yeah, six years in, I think I, I finally purchased and, first one. And you got what? I just bought a, um, just a Tahoe, just a Chevy Tahoe. Still have it. So your dad was the principal of the high school that you attended. Yeah, that's right. Um, how hard was he on you? My dad's the type that uh, I think, if anything, he probably told all the teachers to be even harder on me um, and push me. And he put me in all the toughest classes. I never got to make you know my own schedule or anything. You know, he constantly uh, uh, pushed me and, and um, you know, I think uh, tried to help me reach my expectation, I mean, my, my, my potential. So to speak. Why do he sign you up for speech class and <laughs> speech competition? I, I don't know. My sister's got to do like ASB and all these like fun electives. Uh, yeah, and my, my elective time came for me and uh, competitive speech is what I got put in. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, in fairness to you though, I was talking to him the other day on the phone and he, uh, you know, made the point that you're really smart and uh, jokingly told me he made the observation that you were the exception among the siblings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I, I mean, hope they see maybe. This. I hope that makes the final cut and I hope they see this. Um, he obviously, yeah, you, know, know, had you know, high expectations. For yeah, it. school for whatever reason, especially then, like high school, kind of clicked for me, and, and, and school did come easy. Um, made sense. I enjoyed it. I had a lot of interest in a lot of topics. Um, not competitive speech, though. No. And uh, yeah, and, and so it was definitely foreign to me. I mean, who is comfortable? What high school kid is comfortable getting up in front of a group of people, especially strangers, and and. Uh, Orating. It was it was kind of clumped into like the theater program, right? I mean, the theater teacher did the speech, and, and so there were a lot of theater kids in there, and that that actually was part of the speech program, where all these like theatrical interpretations, right? That that and that definitely uh, is like not my forte or cup of tea as uh, theater. Um, but obviously, there's a side of it that is kind of original oratory, you know, and 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 that definitely I did more of that. I, I really like researching something, you know, writing my own speech and then having to give it and, and all the phases of that and trying to be dynamic. Um, it definitely was hard. I did it for two years, my junior, senior year, and yeah, I went to these competitions. And the only benefit was that I also, I had this speech ready that like these <laughs> random like rotary club like competitions would come up, like speech competitions okay. and they'd have like a $200 prize. And I had a speech like ready to roll every year for these competitions, and, and luckily, uh, I did. Yeah, I got to make a little money in high school. Oh, did, in these did you ever win? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Like they all had, they had like, there'd be like the local level okay. rotary, and then you'd go to the next stage. And yeah, every year I at least won the local level, which was like a little bit of cash, and then um, did a little better my senior year. Yeah, I think I won like two checks, which was nice. How did you become class president? Yeah, good question. Um, I'd never done anything like that up to that point. Uh, and been involved in any kind of like student government in high school or, or anything and uh, got to my senior year. And I think it was one of those things, right? You're thinking about where you're gonna go. Uh, I'd been doing well in school and, and uh, definitely had high aspirations as far as uh, where I wanted to go and get in. And, and what, what were your aspirations? I mean, uh, yeah, I mean like the highest of highs. I definitely had aspirations of, uh, you know, Ivy League and uh, Stanford and a bunch of obviously Berkeley and UCLA coming from California. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when stuff wasn't when, going well at Utah, your mom was pushing you to go to Harvard. Yeah, before that, right? Yeah, through the recruiting process, definitely right. pushing me hard uh, for to go to the Ivy Leagues. And so, 
thought this would look good on my resume and uh, ran for senior class president and won and uh, obviously quickly found out there's responsibilities that come with it. Um, and so, yeah, I had to do that. Luckily, uh, yeah, my buddy Andre also uh, ran for like treasurer or something. So uh, he and I were in it together. <laughs> How do you get an A on, or an A in chem without ever even opening a textbook? I probably read the textbook. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, that was part of the deal with my dad, right? My, my senior year when, you know, a lot of my buddies were taking uh, the least amount of classes as they could, right? I mean, you know, your senior year, they were like only at school for a class a day and yeah. hitting the bare minimum and um, enjoying their senior year. Uh, you know, my dad, you know, once again, yeah, I didn't get, didn't get to make my schedule and, and I had a full, a full schedule and I had a bunch of AP tests and AP classes and, uh, you know, between physics and yeah, chemistry and computer programming, I took some I took some crazy ones and uh, was fortunate enough. Yeah, my junior and senior year, I I, I took all those tests and uh, did well enough to, that I that I passed them all. And, and so, uh, you know, I hated it at the time. Uh, it was a bunch of cramming and and you know, obviously studying and getting ready for all that stuff. But uh, you know, once it came time to uh, go to college, it, it definitely had paid off. Well, right. I mean, you get an economics degree in two years yeah. in college, and then you start on your master's before you're ever even drafted. Um, explain what Mensa is and the <laughs> offer that you got. Yeah, uh, I didn't even know what Mensa was at the time. Um, yeah, but I had graduated and I'd started my master's. And then I had this crazy opportunity to uh, go to the NFL, and, and, I, and I did. You know, I left school early and, and uh, you know, went to the NFL, and they have this test they give guys called the wonder lick and uh i had scored well enough on the wonder lick that the, i got this big old packet from menza and at the time i'm like i don't even know what menza is and uh yeah i was like uh given an honorary if i wanted it this honorary membership uh into menza just based off my you know history of college and the wonder lick and basically it's this kind of academic uh organization of guys people with uh Really high, high IQs, IQs right? yep, that, that are part of this organization. And I think they, yeah, I mean, there's obviously events and things and newsletters and stuff that go out about it. But uh, it was news to me at that time. But uh, obviously humbling. Uh, didn't, still don't know if I necessarily deserve it. In the high school you went to, Helix, was a football powerhouse. Yeah. I think uh, your junior year, um, eight of your teammates went to play the highest level of college football, yeah. D1. Yeah. You were teammates with Reggie Bush. Yep. And you and Reggie, fast forward to college, yeah. the only two people ever who've been high school teammates and both in the same yeah, high yeah, school finals yeah. class. Um, what do you think made Reggie Bush so talented in high school? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of things. I mean, for one, I mean, he just was so much better, uh, especially on a high school field. I mean, I remember when he was 15, 14, 15 years old, um, you know, coming up playing with us. And, and uh, I mean, he had so much better I mean, he was such a better player, speed, agility, change of direction, uh, vision uh, than, than anybody else out there. Uh, even as a 15-year-old, I remember people constantly, you know, yeah, they just, I mean, he's going to win the Heisman one day uh, type of talk, um, which I'm sure gets said about a lot of high school stars, right? You know, and, and uh, there's a lot of those kids that, that, are, that are high school stars, and he just was uh, such an exception. 
so much better than everybody else out on the field. And uh, certainly a lot of work there, right? I mean, obviously a lot of a natural ability, but uh, Reggie was a guy that was very humble, uh, worked really hard, um, and always had, and, uh, you know, excelled in a, in a lot of areas just naturally too, though. So yeah, it was just this crazy combination of talent and, and uh, work ethic, and, and uh, it was fun to be a part of, fun to, fun to watch. Uh, we were really good. Football is a team sport for sure, but at the high school level, when you have a talent like that, I mean, he was, he was uh, uh, pretty special. And how motivating is it for you as quarterback when all these people are coming out to evaluate Reggie? Like yeah, knowing yeah. yeah, it was like a double-edged sword. For one, um, I didn't get to throw the ball very much because we obviously were pretty good at running it. And, uh, and, and how true is it that you were secretly, at times, hoping he'd get tackled so you had the opportunity <laughs> no, to No, never. I, oh, I, come on, that's, no, really? No, never. Uh, you sure? You know, yeah, you're trying to win a championship, you know, in high school. That I, that's like, all what I high heard. High school championships, like, uh, man, when you're in high school, that's a big deal. I mean, so. but did you guys even have to worry about that? Your dad, who was the principal, was saying, you guys were blowing people out by more points than yeah, he was even yeah, comfortable we, with. I mean, we were, we were pretty good and, and uh, Certainly my senior year, we did lose once though. It was kind of this uh, shocking upset. Uh, did lose the league rival. So, I mean, it was, it was possible. It was the only game we lost, the only game I lost in high school. But yeah, it was this double-edged sword, right? I mean, yeah, we were so good. We, we obviously were kind of a run first team and, and there were a lot of games at halftime I was out, you know, we were up by so much. So I didn't have many pass attempts, bottom line, because of, you know, I blame that on Reggie yeah. uh, personally. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, he was attracting so many uh, colleges uh, to the school that, that it, it was a you know a gift for me because I had all these schools coming around and I had all this access right so at the same time I mean you name the school uh, they were probably on our campus at some point looking at film Reggie I mean he was that that good so yeah that was it was nice for me that uh, there were all these college coaches on on campus and that uh, I did get I did get looked at how much did watching your older brother Josh play football and then those Friday night sessions with him and your dad reviewing the game uh, help in kind of indirectly getting you into it? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I distinctly remember, you know, my older brother's eight years older than me. And so it's a big gap, right? I mean, we didn't, we never competed against each other. He was always so much bigger and better and stronger that you never could. Um, but from the earliest I remember, I mean, I, I remember watching him play, right? And, and as I was a young kid, he was going into high school. So uh, watching him go into his high school games and watching him play and he played quarterback and he's the reason I wanted, I wanted to play quarterback, you know, and, and uh, uh, definitely uh, walked around in his shadow uh, wanting to be like him, right? Uh, the way he walked, I walked, you know, I remember being a kid and my little brother's uh, like slightly pigeon-toed <laughs> and, and I remember like, walking around trying to be pigeons like I wanted to be like him right like that was the deal and uh, uh, I distinctly remember there were obviously there were a bunch of little brothers I remember at his high school game at Helix right so I'd be watching watching him play and they were really good he was a good player and, and uh, Helix has always had a really good football program. Why do you know the names of all the quarterbacks uh, like who were rated higher than you coming out of high school? Um, you know, I think uh, for one curiosity, uh, you know, we were really we were a really good football school. I, I, you know, I felt like in high school, man, we probably could have played with anybody. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the talent that we had, um, and so this was kind of like the dawn of 
a lot of these databases now that are online, right? Like high school databases, like back then it was like Cal High Sports, you know, and they'd rate recruits and they'd have, you know, these databases of film and they'd rank these teams and, you know, you're so-and-so stars and you're like, you're the best quarterback in the state or you're this ranked nationally. And so you could follow all these guys, right? Like I remember like, you know, hearing about all these like elite 11 quarterbacks and these guys threw for this many yards and had these offers from these schools and were these like rated. And I was a like, I had the, the NR, like the no, no rating, yeah. right? Uh, no offers, wasn't even ranked, uh, you know, like in California. And uh, yeah, so from afar, right, this curiosity that I felt like we could beat anybody. I felt like I could play. Um, and I had this curiosity, like, could I, right? Like, what was my potential? Man, and it, it drove me, right? It was like obsessive a little bit. I knew that I knew the guys that are Elite 11 my year, like, hey, these are the guys, right? These are the best. Um, had offers from everywhere. I mean, they got to pick their school, and, um, you know, I had, an, I had one offer, you know? And uh, it was different, So, but that curiosity, like, drove me. Uh, like, Wait, you had two offers, though, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, Utah and Louisville? And Louisville. I, I mean, those were the I don't two. count that one. Uh, the nepotism involved <laughs> well, well, uh, doesn't, I don't, I'm not sure that qualifies as a, as a full offer. So your uncle was the head coach of Louisville Yeah, I grew time, up in a football also, yeah. Like, also was once the head coach of Michigan State. Um, but, yeah. uh, I mean, he made you an offer, and I, I mean, I think his offensive coordinator legitimately, yeah. like, recruited you, too. But how, how true is it that, I mean, because he was the head coach, you decided not to go there, especially because I think when you were quarterback in high school, some people thought that you might have only gotten that because your dad was principal. Yeah, I mean, there was always that stigma a little bit, like the principal's kid, um, you know, so certainly, yeah, like, as I was growing, I mean, not so much my senior year, but certainly as, I, as you're competing for like the, the starting varsity job, right? And all of a sudden you win it. Yeah, there was always, uh, I think, some resentment uh, from people that maybe I competed against and, and other people in the school. Yeah, like, ah, oh, he's just there. He's the principal's kid. Bother you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, for sure, early on, yeah, like I felt like I'd earned it, um, you know, and you, and you had to go out and prove that. I mean, that's kind of, it was ridiculous, you know, but nonetheless, it was there. It wasn't early on when I was competing, like sophomore, junior year, and trying to play. Like, yeah, like, oh, he's the principal's kid is the only reason. Uh, but yeah, then I grew up in a big football family, and my uncle was a Division One coach, and when I was in high school, he was at Louisville. And uh, yeah, Scott Linehan was the coordinator at that time. He was a, you know, a uh, young coach, and I felt like, yeah, it was kind of this, uh, oh, yeah, they had me out for an official and, and offered me but it seemed random. I was growing up in San Diego, you know, I was getting the majority of, of the recruiting that took place for me was, you know, at that time, kind of these WAC schools and Mountain West and West Coast schools. And, uh, you know, Louisville offered me and had me out. Obviously, it was pretty glaring. Like when I went on my trip, my uncle and his family picked me up and my cousins were there. And like, you know, this wasn't it, your typical uh, trip to a college and, and uh, evaluating a school. Uh, I had known Scott Linehan since I was a little kid, uh, just through my uncle. You know, he played for my uncle at the University of Idaho. So I always questioned how genuine it was um, in my head, you know, the self-doubt, and, and that always lingered. And um, yeah, so I don't totally qualify that one as a, a, a real scholarship offer. So you go to Utah, um, you end up being asked to forego your redshirt uh, freshman season, which removes 
you know, year of your playing eligibility, and then your first game or the first time you get in, you throw two interceptions, one is returned for a touchdown, and then you don't get the opportunity to play again that season. Um, but that night after that game, what are you thinking? Oh, man. It was a disaster. The game's already over. It's out of reach. I go out. I'm trying to be a hero. And, and uh, yeah, I throw, I throw a pick six pretty quick. Um, I get sacked a bunch of times. I'm indecisive. It's just it's not good at all, right? And this is my first taste of, of college football uh, playing time. And, and that whole year just uh, spiraled down. I ended up not, not playing at all the rest of the year. I played seven plays. Uh, and lost my whole year. Coaching staff got fired. We definitely underachieved. Um, yeah, and it was a frustrating year, right? On, on a lot of levels, uh, losing's not fun. And then to get put through all that, and, and really felt like I got deceived a little bit and lost my whole year. Why did you feel like you got deceived a little bit? Uh, just from the playing time standpoint, right? You know, here I'm going to give up my redshirt year and uh, come out and play. We were already midway through the season and uh, promised playing time and. Uh, never happened, you know, and, and uh, seven plays for a whole year eligibility was a, was a hard, tough pill to swallow. So your mom's pushing you to transfer to Harvard. You end up staying put at, uh, at Utah. Um, new coach ends up coming in, uh, Urban Meyer, um, and he said that you were, quote, an okay quarterback <laughs> who overanalyzed everything and didn't know what he was doing. Um, and that you were only third string because there wasn't a fourth string yeah, available. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, why did you always think, even once you got to college, that that was kind of going to be it for you? That, I mean, you're going to play in college and then move on to a new career? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe, I don't know what you want to call it, maybe too much self-doubt, like too realistic a kid. You'd always hear the stats, right? Like what the percentage is of playing professional sports, professional football, right? Like it's... It's, it's it's tiny, it's absurd, right? And uh, so I don't even know if I, I, I dared to dream like that. You know, for me growing up, I loved college football. I loved, uh, I, and I still do the idea of the student athlete, right? I, I mean, I loved Saturdays growing up. And the great thing about being on the West Coast is like college games started at like nine in the morning, right? And it was like wake up and, and games were on all day. And I could, wa I could watch, you name it, I could watch it. I don't care what conference, what level of football, college football. Like I loved college football. I love the idea of like just total selflessness, right? The pride in school, giving it up, the student section, the band, like uh, the energy that comes with college sports, especially college football. And I loved that, and that was my dream, right? That was like what I, and it just it got bigger and bigger as I got older, and then as I as I got in high school, and I. You know, that's what I dared to dream for, right? Like, that, that, could I go do that? And I wanted to do that, and I wanted to be that. And so I never thought about anything beyond that. Uh, education. Like, really? Never. never. Yeah, no, nah, never. I mean, uh, I didn't even think about it. I didn't dare to. It when did seemed, you start? It seemed absurd. Um, I mean, God, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I mean, not even until after probably, like, my last college regular game did I think that that was a possibility. Uh, oh, yeah, I, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> Man, so, you didn't think about it until after your last college game and then you went number one? Yeah, well, when you go to Utah, the University of Utah, I mean, we certainly had guys go on and play, right, and, and have NFL careers, but I mean, the last quarterback at that point to have gone on and played was Scott Mitchell. I mean, and that was in the 80s. Uh, I mean, this wasn't like we were pumping out 
college quarterbacks that were like having NFL careers. And so, yeah, but you went number one after your last. I mean, yeah, this but you like kind of you, you're kind of in a bubble. Uh, we weren't a big division program. This is in the days of the BCS, right? And and and, and all the talk then was, could we be the, the first school to break down the BCS to defi defy the BCS? And and that's the world we lived in, right? And that's everything we worked for. Could we be the school that, that breaks down the BCS? And we knew we had to run the table to do it. And I played my sophomore year. You know, I played all those games. And I mean, I, you're in relative obscurity. I mean, I was just this sophomore quarterback from the University of Utah. I mean, we had done okay as my sophomore year. And we had expectations for ourselves uh, going into my junior year, my last year. But uh, none of those expectations were outside of uh, Salt Lake. And so, uh, certainly from a national scene, yeah, there, there were never, I, I mean, I'd started my master's. I had every intention of coming back from my senior year. I uh, never thought in my wildest dreams I'd ever get drafted. Uh, yeah, maybe, I mean, I, I think maybe at that point, who knows, maybe you got a cup of coffee or something, I get a tryout, but I never, I never had expectations uh, beyond that. What do you um, think you were going to do? Uh, go to school. I'm going to, I'm going, I started my master's. I was, uh, were contemplating you in law. Yeah. Contemplating going to law school, getting my JD. Uh, you know, I was still in, th in the thick of figuring out what it is I want to do. Right. What, what I want to do with my life. I knew education was important. I knew it was, you know, the vehicle for me to go do what I wanted to do. And, and, uh, and I wasn't finished there. And, and, uh, I guess I've still pressed pause on that to this day. Right. I mean, I've still, I've still hit the pause button. Um, you know, and someday I'm gonna have to go back to that and, and, and I'll get to kind of uh, play that out, um, so. What's your reaction the first time you're given any idea of the type of money you could be earning once you're drafted? Yeah, you're just floored by it, right? You don't believe it, right? And, and you don't see the money, right? No one's like showing you that much cash. Uh, you see it on a piece of paper so it's not as easy to believe. You're not sure it's real. You're not sure, you're, not, you're, you're definitely not qualified to like handle that. Uh, no 20 year old comes spitting out ready to, uh, um, uh, to, to be able to invest that kind of money properly. So 20 years old, $48 million contract. Yeah. Uh, and you don't even have credit yet. No, in fact, I have bad credit because I got talked into my last year when I, we moved off campus. Me and a bunch of buddies, right? We, we finally get off the dorms and we move into a house. And somehow I get like, I get like all the utilities put in my name. You know, you were like divvying up the bills, right? Like, hey, you guys got this, you guys got this. And somehow they all get put in my name, of course, right? The whole last year, like we, I mean, we definitely were late on a bunch of bills. Like, you know, like final notice, like lights are gonna get turned off. Hey, we better pay this one. Um, and they were somehow like, yeah, the majority of them were under my name. So my credit not only is not great, it's bad. Uh, it's bad uh, coming into the NFL. How tough was it for you going from always having kind of been the underdog to all of a sudden yeah. you go number one yeah. and you have the weight of yeah. all the expectations that now come with being the face of a franchise? Yeah, complete flip. And you kind of named it. I mean, I my entire football career up to that point, even at Helix, I wasn't recruited and then, you know, Utah and we we're this mid-major and, and uh, you know, we, we, got, we got to aim for the mountaintop, right? But like really from the shadows and got to plot it and work for it and we did and we achieved it. Um, and that's, it was amazing, but it was a very different experience than, uh, you know, when no one expected us to do that, no one expected me to do that. 
um, to all of a sudden now to, I mean, you don't get to pick where you get to go, <laughs> you know, when you're drafted. I mean, it sounds amazing, right? You don't get to pick the situation. You don't get to pick your teammates. You don't get to, hey, that one looks, that looks pretty sweet over there. Like, I think I could succeed over there. Uh, no, and in fact, you're working so hard, I, I think I'm the best quarterback, right? And I'm trying to put my best foot forward and I'm the best. And, you know, these are my great, my strengths. Um, and then you get drafted and you know, the higher you go, the worse the team, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's this like, direct correlation with uh, the higher you get drafted, the worse the situation probably. Um, so, yeah, and I played right away uh, and I had all these expectations and man, it was, uh, it was heavy. I, I carried. I walked around with a lot of weight on my shoulders. Um, it added to my anxiety. Uh, it added to the pressure. And now all of a sudden, you're front and center on the big stage, and, and uh, everybody has lofty expectations for you. Um, How did it and so I, you? I, uh, oh man, a lot of ways, right? I, I walked around with a lot of weight. I played with a lot of weight. I was so afraid to make mistakes, scared to make mistakes. I, everything I did, I, I felt like I had to be perfect, and I was dealing with trying to uh, make it in the NFL and deal with yeah, being the number one pick and helping a franchise try to turn it around and uh, reach my potential and, and get out of my own way. Right. And uh, certainly the pressure I applied to myself uh, to be perfect um, and to not make mistakes uh, mounted and, and kept mounting. And I didn't have a very good rookie year and that just like snowballed. You know, I think that, that, that added to the weight um, you know, and, 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 you know, whispers of bust and, uh, you know, not good enough and mistake and, and, and things like that. Like you hear all those and you hear them really loud and, and it adds to it. And so, you know, and then you combine that with not, not having a ton of success and a bunch of coaching changes and, and, uh, you know, it just, it was a lot, it was a lot. And I got, I got in my own way a lot. Uh, my first few years, it was, uh, uh, it was difficult, frustrating. Were, were you unhappy in your personal life because of everything that was going on professionally? No, no, no. But it was hard. It's hard to separate your personal life when, when you're professionally not going that well. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and and this isn't. You're not Joe Schmo working for whatever company, right? I'm walking around town, and you're, right? I mean, you don't you don't get to, I don't get to vanish into anonymity. You know, like. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to separate your professional life and your personal life. So a lot of times, yeah, it would carry over. But yeah, personally, no. I mean, I, was it like embarrassing walking around town then? I mean, that kind of time, Oh yeah. Oh, there were for sure times like the way we played and I played. Are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. Why d during a game when you're on yeah. the sidelines would you be computing your quarterback rating? Yeah. I mean, I can uh, specifically. I mean, remember obviously thinking about completion percentages and ratings and things like that. I felt like, yeah, getting drafted there, kind of the dawn, the, like the birth of fantasy sports were kind of just up and rolling and getting going. And yeah, there was so much emphasis, right? Uh, like the bottom ticker, you know, regardless if you won or actually how you probably played on a play-by-play -play basis, didn't really matter. It was like all anybody saw was like your stat line, right? Like, oh, well he went, you know, 16 of 24 for like a touchdown and like one, whatever, like, uh, his rating was this, um, and sometimes, and then it's actually not. There, there's a lot of times like you can have a great rating, and like you, you actually on like critical plays maybe didn't didn't really do it, mm -hmm. you know, and you didn't really help your team when it counted, 
and vice versa. Like you could have played like, man, like it was a tough game, tough opponent. Man, big moments, you stepped up, made some big plays, really helped the team win. Uh, we're critical, right? Um, but rating wasn't great, you know? And, and uh, that always doesn't carry over. So like internally, like, man, I felt like, I, you know, you played pretty dang good and battled and, and rating wasn't great and vice versa. Played like crap and big moments weren't there, but uh, my stat line looked clean. You still do that? You know, that's always there and it's still there too because it's only gotten bigger. The fantasy thing's only gotten bigger. Uh, stat lines are even more, you know, I, I, more people come up and say, man, I, I got you on my fantasy team than ever. And, uh, but so you'll be on the sideline. No, I don't now. do that now. No, I've got, sure? I've got, yeah, I got a lot more fuck it in me than that. What does that mean? I, I just think, and it took me a long time, I think, to kind of get the, uh, uh, to build that up to like, you care less deep down in about making, trying to get people to like you. And it took a long time and a lot of air um, to get to the point to kind of build up, you know? Yeah, a good amount of fuck it. <laughs> and, and, uh, and like, so yeah, like I, I see my, like now, like, man, I could, I've, I've gone through so much. I could care less trying to um, uh, make some fantasy owner or prove something to somebody out there. I'm, I'm doing everything I can uh, to be in the moment and, and, and uh, help my, my football team win, win games. I owe, I owe all that uh, to my teammates, right? I owe them that. Um, and that's where my focus is. And, and it's easier, to, I think, to think about uh, moment to moment. I'm not trying. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to be comfortable in my own skin. You know, I'm going to play for my teammates, uh, for the people in the building, right? The team, myself, uh, in that order. I want to take you to uh, 2008. Um, in addition to just struggling um, you know, still on the field. Yeah. Now comes August and your personal life just ends up getting upended. Yeah. Um, your best friend, David Edwards, um, how close were the two of you? Yeah, I mean, he was like, um, David is like a adopted brother uh, in the Smith family. You know, um, not, not only how close he was to me, I think that this was, uh, so hard. I mean, just such a like literally a member of my family almost. Um, had such individual relationships with every member of my family, and so uh, and it, and and had been there with me obviously along the entire ride. Uh, so yeah, and then you know to you know when he committed suicide, um, it's a lot of it's a, it's a lot of things you deal with, you know, as a best friend. Um, you know, that, that uh, I was so ingrained in what was going on with me and, and football was not going well. And um, I'm in the middle of camp, uh, you know, and there's a lot of things you, you deal with there uh, that I would, you know, you wish you could go back and I could have done differently and could I could have been a better friend. And uh, did I, was I selfish uh, at those moments, um, you know, when he needed me and, and uh, at the same time you're, um, you know, really pissed off at him, you know. Uh, and still to this day, man, I, I think about all the time, my kids, uh, that he's never got a chance to meet, uh, you know, my boys, uh, my little girl, uh, that, that he never got a chance to meet and be a part of because he was so uh, irrational in a moment's instance. Um, so what made you pissed off at him? Yeah, that he just didn't have the, he couldn't see the bigger picture, you know. Um, that he couldn't 
that he couldn't uh, handle it. Yeah, that he was that frustrated, uh, and in a moment, um, just ended it. You know, and so yeah, it was uh, difficult. It definitely brought brought me back. Obviously, at that point. Um, you know, football kind of took a back seat. That was the same year. I mean, I, I spent the whole year on the IR uh, with my shoulder, um, which was probably a good thing, uh, you know, for me to just kind of uh, get through all of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I think that definitely also was a spark a little bit too about, you know, leading up to me kind of, you know, changing my ways and, and uh, you know, not not trying to be such a pleaser and, and, and uh, you know, a little more kind of living for myself. and you know, what it, what it says about life, you know, a little bit. I think it made me reflect on a lot of those things uh, as I, as I kind of dealt, you know, dealt with, you know, what David did. It was the last thing I ever expected to hear. Never would have imagined it in a, you know, thousand years. And, and uh, he was the last person I ever thought they would do something like that. Um, so it took, yeah, it was a long, long time for that to kind of finally soak in. Um, what did you guys talk about the day before? We had talked briefly, it was quick, I had to run. Um, we'd been trying to talk. He was kind of, you know, obviously I knew he was, he'd moved back home and was trying to figure out what he was doing. He'd getting ready to go to law school. He had taken the LSAT and applying uh, to places and uh, trying to figure out kind of his next step. And, you know, dealing, he was dealing, I knew he was dealing with some stuff personally, like, you know, kind of girlfriend stuff and things like that. Um, you know, so I knew that was going on. Never thought, never knew it was at that level, obviously. Uh, you know, um, you know, and so just kind of talked quick. I mean, I was going. I didn't have necessarily have time. You know, I felt like, uh, you know, and felt like I would, you know, I was always, I'll talk to him later. You know, and Dave was always the guy, too. Like, you never know. He'd always be talking to me about ball, uh, talking to me about what's going on in my life. Um, and your wife, Liz, said you really struggled with, like, forgiving yourself for not answering when he yeah, called you Yeah, you know, never, yeah, like, I, I distinctly remember looking at my call log and having missed phone calls uh, from David, uh, you know, like, I, and it was hard, right? I mean, yeah, in camp and having missed phone calls from David and looking at my call log and remember staring at it and, uh, yeah, not prioritizing, right? Like I was so focused on me and football and camp and what I was going through and dealing with that you didn't have time, didn't make time. Yeah, and definitely, uh, yeah, haunted me for a long time, you know? Um, what if I'd have just picked up the phone? Could I have Could I have changed it? Could I have stopped him? Could I have been that, you know, voice of reason type? Yeah, long time, battled that a long time. That kind of always will be there. How did you get past it? Grieving's um, different for everybody, you know. Um, definitely, like I said, it was probably best I wasn't playing that year, um, that I was on IR, because I was dealing, you know, dealing with a lot. Uh, so, time, you know, there's times there where you didn't, I didn't think I'd ever get over that. I mean, we were that tight, you know, we were really, really tight. And then to see the way it affected my family, you know, um, you know, they were all so close with him uh, as well. Uh, so, you know, that made it even hurt, more, you know, worse. Um, you know, time, time moves on and the days go on. Um, 
and you, you just you, you kind of slowly work through a lot of that. Uh, you know, you finally you finally get to that first day. You know, weeks down the line, you finally get you finally get to that first you know few hours where you, it's not on your mind. You really? know, that takes a while. Yeah, I mean, it's a few weeks where like I remember being on the practice field and all you're thinking about. Is, David, it's hard to escape that, you know, that whole escape I talked about with football and being in the moment, it's hard for that to finally kick in. And then, it, you know, it finally does. And then you do get to the point where you're like, yeah, ah, it's been a little while since I thought about him, you know, and then you finally get to the point where, hey, maybe a day passed, you know, and I didn't necessarily think about uh, what had happened and, and uh, everything that comes with that. In those first, you know, many years in uh, San Francisco, there were a number of critics to say the least. Yeah, and I yeah. wanted to mention a, a couple moments and just get you to recall yeah. what was on your mind when you heard it at the time. Yeah, yeah. The, the first one being Jerry Rice saying you aren't the quarterback of the future. Yeah, arguably the greatest football player ever. You know, I think that's an easy argument to make. Um, you know, definitely obviously one of the greatest 49ers ever, a, a Niner legend, certainly the heyday of the Niners, what we were all achieving to try to get back to. You know, and yeah, that uh, to be so vocal about uh, uh, about me, you know, and clearly his lack of support and, and what he thought about me. Um, you certainly heard, you know, you couldn't, uh, those were certain times, those are hard to, uh, you know, you're hard to, to cancel out. Um, so yeah, you hear them, um, you know, they're there. Uh, yeah, so it's tough. You're sounding like a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, does it, it, does uh, there's it piss a lot of you people. Off? Does it like? For sure, you, I, I just think like, the things. Why did this guy say? I mean, like. Yeah, I mean, I think in the time, I, I, I knew, I knew how dysfunctional uh, the work environment I was in at the time. What it was. And, but and as a young player, th three head coaches, seven offensive coordinators, yeah. seventeen different starting wide receivers over yeah. the course of seven seasons. I yeah. mean, in order for anybody to yeah. have success, you have yeah. to have stability. And yeah. You had none of that. So. Yeah, and I know it's. I mean, just the, the culture at the time in the building. You know those first six years for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I knew that it was really dysfunctional. I knew that this wasn't the way that successful places operated. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're a young QB, you, you can't. It's hard to vocalize that. It's hard to stand up and say that. Uh, it's hard to make the change because you don't necessarily at that point. I don't know what the right thing totally looks like, mm -hmm. right, at the NFL level, because I haven't been around it yet. I, I do know that that the situation I'm in was not the right way. You know, I, I didn't know that. I mean, I knew we were, this was uh, not healthy. Um, just the culture, I mean, everything about it. Forget the coaching changes. Uh, I'm talking just the culture of the building was not. What was it? Like how uh, yeah, you just not, it? The focus, uh, yeah, I mean, just unhealthy. Completely dysfunctional. Um, like, and what made it that Different way? people on different wavelengths, not a clear communication, not a clear goal of the entire building. Um, very separated. And even then, that, I think that all trickled into the locker room where we had, it was very uh, separated locker room, offense, defense, special teams, uh, wasn't a selfless unit, not everybody putting the team first. I mean, I think all those things uh, that come with dysfunction that are the opposite of, of what healthy organizations and team environments have. Yeah, but you're just, you're just so young, right? And like I said, I didn't know what a good place, I didn't know what the answers totally were, how to get there. So. Um, vocalizing that was hard as a young guy. And so that was what made it really frustrating, I think, when, yeah, you did have guys like Jerry, or you did have guys that uh, were, were so vocal about it. Because as a player, you're the one getting put out there, right? I'm the one that gets put out there. Mm -hmm. 
the, uh, the all the other people that maybe add to that dysfunction aren't necessarily exposed as much as us players, and so we're the easy target. So that yeah, when you are the, the you know the, the target of criticism, it, and nobody wants to make mistakes, and it's you, you, they don't, but you, you do know they're on the outside looking in, and they don't know. Man, I'm not I'm not playing for Bill Walsh in the uh, in the heyday of the of the West Coast uh, on that team. Yeah, you know it's it's different. Um, you know, and I was just, you're just a young guy trying to find your way and, and, uh, and navigate all that, you know? How many times were you booed by the home crowd? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there definitely was a few year period where I was far more comfortable playing on the road that I looked forward to road games. Really? Oh, yeah. That the pressure of the home game, uh, fans turning on us, turning on, yeah, that was a lot for sure. There were certainly times leading up to that moments of such poor play and product <laughs> that it uh, for sure justified, right? Like it was bad, I mean, it was bad, bad ball uh, that we were putting out there. Certainly leading up to the, to the one that really obviously sticks out to me, uh, I definitely remember, I think it was a Sunday night game, uh, playing against Coach Reed, he was then at, at Philadelphia, I was in at, at Candlestick, uh, Sunday night game and, and uh, you know, it goes, we were capable of, a t as a team, so much better, so much more. Um, this was the same team that the next year went 13-3, and three, um, and that we were underachieving and uh, not, not, not playing to our potential, and I think fans certainly frustrated. Yeah, and then getting booed uh, Sunday night in front of everybody, national TV crowd, and just, uh, it, it, you know, feel like I'm battling and, and, and feel like I'm the guy that's getting exposed out there. You know that there were a lot of other things that I'm taking the brunt of, you know, and and that I'm and then all of a sudden I'm dealing with a head coach on the sideline that's in my face and and screaming at me on top of fans chanting for the backup, you know, and I was trying to trying to please all these people, right? I had, you know, I felt like a head coach that didn't understand uh, at all what it took, um, you know, and and uh, being put in a getting put out there in a situation that's not optimal uh, to go succeed. And taking all that, and, and uh, yeah, you know, and I think there finally a moment where you're just like, man, this is uh, screw this, right? I'm not, I'm tired. Of, I'm tired of trying to uh, please all these different people. You know, I'm I'm done with this, and, and really kind of being that that kind of culmination of all that. And I'm just gonna I'm gonna go play for my teammates and, and play for me, and and I'm not gonna worry about the rest of this stuff. You're heavily involved in charity. Yeah. Um, what got you? interested, involved in, or involved yeah, with yeah. foster children? Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, I, I think just the, I mean, I grew up uh, constantly, I think, uh, giving back, volunteering, toy assembly here, donation drives here, um, constantly being a part of that, constantly getting dragged to those things by my, my, my parents, my mom. Uh, who was who a social worker. Yeah, involved in, in, in the social work field in San Diego. And yeah, and then when I got drafted, very I, I knew I wanted to do something, right? Here's this fortune, you mentioned the contract. Couldn't believe it. God, you know, and how, how crazy is this uh, that, I got, that I get to do this and I'm gonna make this money and uh, never expected it. And so, um, yeah, like, like, man, we could not, let's, I, let's go do something with this, right? Let's do something. I don't know what it is. Right? I grew up a normal middle-class kid and great parents and awesome siblings and grew up in the mean streets of San Diego, you know? Like, I, I didn't have, like, that thing that, like, I dealt with. Right. 
right? So a little bit, I wanted to find it. I wanted to find that thing. And it was pretty quick. Uh, I got exposed uh, to what goes on with uh, foster kids in this country, and, and especially in California at the time. Uh, my mom kind of first introduced me to kind of some of the things that, that go on with foster kids, specifically foster teens. What did you find out? Yeah, I mean, I was 20 at the time, I, right? I had just been drafted and or getting ready to get drafted and just, you know, kind of culminated my college experience. And, and I grew up there. College was the expectation and education was the answer for anything you wanted, you know, to go work for. You go work for it. You go to school. Uh, you can make school work, however it is, you know, scholarships and loans, and you can find a way to make it work and uh, get it done. And that, that's uh, the expectation for, for, for me growing up. And uh, um, I remember being 20 and, and all of a sudden meeting a lot of these, you know, meeting foster kids that were 17 and 18 years old and uh, getting ready to, to, to graduate high school and um, emancipate uh, from the foster care system is what they call it when they age out and turn 18. And so uh, for a lot of these kids, uh, you, you exit the foster care system. Um, and, and the reality for some is that, uh, yeah, I mean, you're getting dropped at a shelter. Uh, with your belongings and uh, given a couple hundred dollars, I think, from the state and, and you know, and wish good luck. And I remember like, uh, just kind of being uh, same thing, like I couldn't believe this was the reality, that this is what we expected uh, um, of kids and we expected them to do better. And I mean, and the reality is they don't, right? I mean, not many graduate high school. Um, within a couple of years of turning 18, a lot of them are homeless, uh, incarcerated. Uh, none, if any, graduate college. I mean, dare to ever even go on to college, let alone ever finish it. I think it's like 2% uh, nationally. And, you know, and, and uh, I remember thinking like, well, no kidding, they do so bad. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, and this was, and I got drafted kind of at, you know, this is the height before the recession and you're trying to get your own house or get your feet on the ground. I mean, I, I had buddies and siblings that multiple postgraduate degrees and you're, they're struggling to get on their feet and uh, figure it out and let alone here's a here's kids barely graduated high school they're totally on their own um, got nobody else dealing with all kinds of other issues with neglect and abuse that none of us have ever had to deal with and then we're expecting we're expecting outcomes better than what we're getting and I remember just thinking how unfair it was I happen to be lucky right I got I'm no <laughs> right. I just got born into a better situation right, right? and then I didn't have anything to do with it. And so, yeah, and just uh, what could I do? Could I do something? What could I do to help these kids? And, you know, and I really identified, I think, with these high school kids, college kids, trying to figure it out as they transition into adulthood. Because um, it's a joke to think you just turn 18 and you got the answers and you, you're going to figure it out. And uh, for me, that education is the key. And, and, and I thought that, and why, like, God, if we could let these kids just focus on school and go to school and be normal you know, maybe they'll have a chance. And so that's really kind of what I, I, I jumped into, uh, just helping these kids kind of continue their education and could I take some of that burden off of them? Um, and could I give them some of the support that maybe a family structure had or mentors had uh, and, and help them stay in school and finish school? Explain what the Guardian Scholarship Program is. Yeah, I, uh, I heard about this program uh, it had been started at Cal State Fullerton, uh, and it was kind of this innovative program to help uh, foster kids stay in college and finish college. So nationally, about 10% of foster youth ever start going to school, and of that, it's like 2 or 3% uh, ever finish. 
Um, and so Guardian Scholars was kind of developed to help them give them the support uh, necessary to finish school. And so when I first heard about it, it kind of reminded me of an athletic scholarship. You know, like when you're, at, when you're a student athlete, you do get uh, a lot of support, right? I got coaches that are staying on me. They, I got class checks, I got uh, grade checks, I got counselors that help me fill out classes at the right time so I can go to practice. I, if I got a problem with housing, boom, I got people I can go to that they're gonna help me find an answer. Um, you know, and help me kind of navigate the university. So it really kind of struck me like, oh man, this is kind of, like, I mean, it's really similar to what I had. And, and I knew how much I benefited from it, right? And uh, I thought, man, let's, let's set this up uh, for, for foster kids. Let's set this up. And so we did, went to San Diego State and uh, asked them if we could start it up and what they thought about it. And uh, they loved it they were on board. So yeah, we kicked it off. Yep, the Guardian Scholar Program at San Diego State, and we tweaked it to our own way, which, like I said, I basically kind of tried to create uh, my experience, right? That, that for any problem that arised, right, man, I need a tutor for this class, I need help here, I need, I need to go talk to somebody about this, um, that there was someone these kids could go to on campus that was there just for them to help them find the answer. How so many was, scholarships did you provide through it? It was a lot. We ended up putting... Uh, Got 24 kids uh, through school, um, full ride, no debt when they came out, um, you know, full comprehensive scholarship. Uh, and the kids who would have never otherwise thought that opportunity. Yeah, these were these 10%, right? These were these 10% that we were getting that, that, that had done well enough in high school that they could get into school. And we basically were telling them, yeah, come into this program and uh, we're going to help you finish school. We're going to make sure that you finish school, right? And there's that combination of not only support, uh, but also, right, like staying on them, right? I mean, the, the class checks, the grade checks. I mean, I remember going down and sitting down with every single kid and going over the grades, right? Oh, and did I, you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and like... What's that like? Yeah, you know, it's a fine line, and it's something that pushed me, right? Because a lot of these kids are dealing with things that I didn't ever deal with, and at the same time, you're trying to help them, but I'm also trying to push them, right? And I had to get over that, like the ones that needed it, right? Like, listen. Now you need, you know, like you got to do better. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, you need to get this program, take advantage. You need to take advantage of this. Um, you're not doing enough. You're not working hard, you know, and trying to be that, that balance, um, you know, that, so you weren't just one-sided. So I have to ask you about the ending with the 49ers. Yeah, yeah. Um, in one season, you take the team like a kick away from the yeah, Super Bowl. Yeah. Uh, next season starts six and two, you get a concussion. Um, and then take me into the room, the sit down you had with Coach Harbaugh. There were a couple, a couple sit downs there. I mean, obviously when I'm trying to come back off this, you know, the, the NFL has this protocol now with concussions and I'm trying to come back and it's a little fuzzy there, obviously trying to get, I'm trying to get cleared to play, um, you know, and Colin plays the following week and, and plays well, right? Um, really well. I mean, young kid comes in and, and uh, first start. So, you know, and then as I'm trying to get get ready again the next week and still trying to like clear and get get out there and and uh you know i feel like i'm playing like some of my best football at the time and like got this opportunity and i don't want to let it uh slip by and so yeah you know obviously talking with coach and, and him sitting down that he's gonna uh gonna go with colin and this was after a couple games i guess at that point um it was hard i mean really hard right like i hear i finally felt like I'd been, like I said, right, I had dealt with all that dysfunction. And finally, like, coach came in, man, and, and 
nah, things were right. Like we, we were going, it was, um, we had a good team, like great staff, like the building finally, I felt like it was about football again, right? It was pure. And, uh, and here it was and finally, and, and I'd been playing good under that and, and was so excited, like, man, here's my window. I went through all that to, for this, right? And it's finally here. And playing great. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, boom, like Colin had played well uh, those, those couple games. You know, and and uh, and I knew he was obviously their guy. You know, they'd brought him in um, and drafted him. I was kind of the leftover. You know, it was hard. It's hard to you know you want to be selfish at that point. Uh, you're pissed off. You're frustrated, right? Uh, at the same time, like um, we're in the middle of a season. We're going like uh, you, you're a play away. You know, like I know it. He's a young guy. He's never played like you're a play away. So you're just kind of going, right? I mean, you're staying ready. Uh, Staying ready for the, your next opportunity and, and when's it going to come and you don't know when it's going to come and, and uh, it, it didn't come right. Colin played out that season and played great and we go to the Super Bowl and uh, we're, we're you know we're right there inside the ten uh, from winning it, uh, which made it even it was harder to to watch that run right what, to watch how well he played and what, us what winning. Were you thinking uh, like on the sideline during the Super Bowl. Yeah, I mean it was just like. It was hard, right? I mean, I was still like a captain. I still went out for the coin toss because <laughs> of the way that season had started. And then, yeah, then sitting and watching and obviously that game got away from us. And then I'm like, oh man, am I going to play? You know, and you're getting ready to roll. And then uh, we come marching back and, and uh, right on the doorstep of a championship. Uh, and you're part of the team, right? Like, these are all my buddies. We've all put in a bunch of time and effort and been through a lot. And yeah, you know, it's, as self selfish as it is to be upset about it and to see Colin playing well, uh, right? Like you're like, put the team first. Can you, can you be the guy that puts the team first um, and, and be happy for the team and uh, us? So yeah, like uh, you've got those inner, that inner speak going on, right? And can you like, you know, I think, um, yeah, can you do that? Can you be the team first guy? Can, you know, so yeah, all that's kind of going on. It's so bittersweet. You're dead. An opinionated guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's uh, what he said. Um, quote, uh, it was an honest and selfless locker room, and Harbaugh's decision showed the veterans, I'm going to flush this quarterback down the toilet. It's easy to destroy trust, and Harbaugh lost the trust of the team. Veteran players have told us that. <laughs> uh, How much do you agree? I don't know. Yeah. He's a... You know, parents say, parents say stuff. Uh, I don't know. You know, to be honest, like I said, I, I don't totally know how other guys reacted to that. It was a hard situation. I think it's easy to look back um, in hindsight, but like if you look at that run of games, you know, Colin was playing really good football, right? We were winning, we were rolling. Um, you know, so I get that, right? Like, was I playing good football too? Was it different? Yeah. Um, do I feel like I could have helped us? Yeah, but like. I, I don't know. You know, I think everybody was trying to, to be selfless and trying to do what's best for the team. You know, obviously it was quickly the next year I was on my way to Kansas City. So uh, what happened after that? I don't totally know the residual effect. You know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, come on. I mean, you know. Well, I see what's happening, right? Team. I mean, obviously yeah. that team is, uh, that team was as one of the most talented teams I've ever been on. And, and I think I would have felt like had a bunch of years left and quickly, uh, that quickly that blew up. Um, but I think there were probably a lot of factors. I don't know how much uh, what happened with me played into that or not. You're the head coach in that situation. Um, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, certainly, I mean, from my perspective, like you said, I felt like I had proven it 
and uh, wanted to get back in there, right? And, uh, you know, through all this protocol had been held out, you know, that, that hadn't been in place before, and that this protocol kept me from being cleared to play and uh, led to the circumstances of, uh, of the whole thing. So I felt like, um, you know, felt like I deserved it. I believe Andy Reid was a big fan of yours way back when, yeah. before you were even drafted. Uh, so when it was clear uh, that time was coming to an end with the 49ers, how much did you wonder if the stars would align? Yeah, I didn't know. You, you don't know. I did feel like a little bit I did make my peace uh, with the Bay Area. You know, and when Coach Harbaugh came in and, and we did have a couple years of success there and, uh, you know, went to the, the NFC Championship game and then the next year obviously played a good chunk of that season and then to, to go to the Super Bowl. Um, and then all of a sudden, yeah, uh, I knew I a little bit on the trading block. And then again, right, like you don't necessarily have total control at that point, right? I don't, I'm not necessarily going to get the pick where I end up. And as like the, the, the possibilities kind of became apparent, you know, and, and, and Coach Reed had come here to Kansas City and taken this job, and then I knew that this was a potential landing spot. Yeah, you're just hoping for it, right? I'm like, man, I hope this you works out. Oh, yeah, at that point, very, very hopeful uh, that this was the place I could, that I, if this was possible, could this, you know, end up. And Why? Uh, for a lot of reasons. I think, uh, for one, I've always, from, from afar, uh, uh, been a fan of Coach Reed's, right? I mean, I think I just looked at a lot of the quarterbacks that had played with him over the years. Um, at that point, obviously, a, a long time with, with Donovan, uh, but a lot of guys in between, you know? And I remember like Coy Detmer playing there and Jeff Garcia and uh, uh, Michael Vick and, and all these guys playing and having success. And, uh, you know, and he, him finding a way to get it done with guys with different skill sets. Um, you know, and so uh, was a fan of that. And then obviously I, I, I looked, you know, here at Kansas City and the roster and the team and everything looked like it was on the up. Um, and so I wanted to be a part of it and, and uh, was fortunate that it worked out. How much was there almost a shared feeling between the two of you that each of you were going to help revive the other one's career? Yeah. Um, or is that just more media? No, you know, it's, I, I don't know if it, it was something that, I mean, it definitely was there, right? Both of us coming from, both of us a little discarded, I guess. You know, certainly he'd had a long run of success at, at Philadelphia, uh, one of the longest tenured guys before that. So that, I mean, that was a little different, but yeah, at that point, uh, a little discarded. Um, but I think it, you know, and both, yeah, ready to prove proved everybody wrong. Um, but he and I probably weren't the only two. I mean, there were a lot of people here uh, that had been here, I think, with the same mentality that we're ready to prove everybody wrong. But yeah, it was, uh, I think we all shared that. We all had that, like, chip. I think that's healthy. Tell about the message in the bottle story <laughs> and how the media got it all wrong. Oh, man. Yeah, so my parents grew up in Idaho, rural Idaho, like farmer, both on farms. And so I grew up with still aunts and uncles that were kind of farmers and grew up in rural Idaho. And we always went up and visited them every year. And so my uncle, though, had come down to visit me. And he was a farmer, he had like a little chunk of land. And he brings down, he visits me in San Diego, I'm like 10. And he brings this Ziploc bag uh, that has a note in it from his neighbor girl. And so my uncle's neighbor, she was a little girl, same age as me. I mean, I think we could have been eight years old. She drops a note in a Ziploc bag in an irrigation ditch, okay? <laughs> 
it's like running, it's like a little stream. It's an irrigation ditch that I think like dumps into my uncle's property, but somehow my uncle thinks it'd be funny if I'd write back like, ah, oh, like I was on the beach in San Diego and I found this. And I'm this like shy kid, right? Like I'm introverted, shy kid, and I somehow let them talk me into this. So I write the letter. I actually forgot about it for a long time, and I finally find it, and like my parents coerced me into this, and I write this letter up saying this. I was on the beach in San Diego, found this letter, da 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 da. And like, come to find out, like a few days later, my like aunt and uncle have called down, and this story has like blown up in this small town in Idaho. And like local news has got a hold of this and that this is like a big story. And they're all out to this girl's house and they're interviewing her and they're like putting up maps and like showing the route of the possible route of this Ziploc bag. And I think it's gotta <laughs> go through like eight dams to finally reach the Pacific Ocean, right? And it's a Ziploc bag. And it already, like it didn't even make it down his irrigation ditch and it was like already water damaged. Um, when I got it. So it was crazy. So like blew up. And then I remember being home alone. Like I was home with my sister. My parents had gone out. She was kind of watching me. We're hanging out and, and this had blown up. And I think my parents had instructed her like, listen, if anybody calls for Alex, like don't, don't let him talk to him. Like, you know, <laughs> and like sure enough, like uh, her parents called and my older sister answers the phone. She's like, oh, you want to talk to Alex? And like puts me on. And I'm like this super shy kid, right? He's, you know, and, and uh, I like completely broke down uh, on the phone. Like her dad, like I think finally kind of like sniffed it out and was like, there's like something funny going on here, right? And uh, I completely broke down and like said it was all like a story and like good fun and like we were, you know, like I'm really sorry. <laughs> you know, was he like eight year old, nine year old kid, so. <laughs> what the dad say? He was fine about it. Um, you know, he was fine. You kind of think he had a hunch that obviously this wasn't really totally possible and had been blown out of proportion. Um, and I think, you know, they were nice enough and got sorted out. The worst was like the following summer on our trip up there, they made me go meet this girl, <laughs> you know, like, I'm Why? like torture enough. Like she was the neighbor. I don't know. It's like <laughs> family does, right? Like put you through stuff. So yeah, I had to go meet her, which was even more embarrassing. Hope you enjoyed my chat with Alex. Additionally, we spoke with a then much lesser known Travis Kelsey, as well as Andy Reid about Smith and tagged along for a day at Chiefs training camp. I also took a ride with Alex, which wound up being a memorable experience. His vehicle reminds me of a hoarder's paradise. It looks as if it's a dirty version of a college kid's car. Nonetheless, it works for him. You can catch all of our clips with Alex at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Remember to submit a rating and review. It is a huge help. Thanks again for listening.